0: Welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. To many of you, welcome back. Another big and tumultuous week in Washington. After Mike Flynn's guilty plea, Democrats thought they finally got the president. We're on our way. That's what they said. That's what they think. Once again, I think they're wrong, and some in the press got the story wrong, too, like Brian Ross of ABC. Boy, that was a big error where he reported that the president had directed uh, Mike Flynn to... uh, Talk to the Russians during the campaign, uh, thus the collusion issue, when in fact the president uh, directed Flynn to talk to the Russians after the election, which is pretty typical, pretty normal, to give them a sense of uh, what you're going to be about and how you're going to deal with them. Well, we'll explain everything that happened, and especially the most recent events with my former professor, one of the sharpest legal minds in the country, Alan Dershowitz, you've been seeing a lot of him lately, and you will hear from him in a couple of minutes. Then I want to talk to you a little bit with Brian Kennedy. Brian, as you know, is the head of the American Strategy Group. I want to talk about a country with some of the richest natural resources in the world. It's collapsing before our very eyes. Why is it collapsing? Brian Kennedy joins me to explain the downfall of Venezuela and why it's a classic example of why socialism and communist socialism doesn't work. This is a case study, and this will be a bit of a master class. There are some other factors going on here in the case of Venezuela, as Brian will explain. But, you know, this was a productive country, and now it is a disaster. But first, some important business to take care of, and that indeed involves, as you know, Close to my heart. The college football playoffs. I'm going to ask Chris to give us the feedback from some of our listeners, given my predictions. But uh, I would like to tell you what I think uh, about the college football playoffs, the selection, and what I think is going to happen. Okay. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right. Before we get to the college football playoffs, let's talk about the week, which had so much to do with who's in the playoffs. And let me remind you of my picks for this last big consequential weekend, which was major division and conference championships. Uh, let's see, Chris, you got my picks handy there.
1: I really can't remember. Did I pick Oklahoma over <laughs> TCU? Uh, actually, no. You—that uh, was your upset pick, your big upset pick. Was uh, TCU over Oklahoma? Yeah, that and, didn't uh, happen. That did not happen. Yeah. And so, of course, we got feedback on uh, on Twitter. Uh, well, let's so, just
0: hear it. Let's just someone hear it someone right gave
1: now. you kudos. Uh, you know, once the game started, they give you kudos. Not looking too good for TCU right now, but brave pick, Bill. Oh, thank so at you. Least, yeah. At least you got some kudos for that. But I want to comment game, on
0: the brave pick thing in a, in a second because the guy's absolutely right, and
1: I deserve a ton of credit. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, and then after the game. Uh, someone else commented on Twitter, uh, keep hating on the Sooners. It only fuels Baker Mayfield. Yeah, only fuels them. Yeah, I know. All right. See, I guess my Texas
0: loyalties are coming out. Yeah. All right.
1: What else? What else did they say? Uh, well, the other picks, uh, I guess we could talk about the picks you got right. Uh, you you know. picked Clemson. Yeah, I one, right. thought that
0: would be a kill, and it was, you know. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, kill. kill may be an understatement. Wasn't much of a game there. Yes. Um, but you also, the one that you got wrong and that some other people gave you grief for is you picked Auburn over Georgia.
0: Yeah, I sure did. Uh, with a lot of the country, but Georgia was ready. Auburn wasn't. I don't know if a healthy carry-on Johnson makes the difference. Probably not in that game. Uh, boy, it does raise the question, can a strong Georgia defense very strong Georgia defense, stop uh, the Oklahoma Sooners. I don't know. Okay, so that's one one and two so far. Yeah, Yeah,
1: and then last but not least, and you got this one right, you picked Ohio State to win.
0: Yeah, uh, and they just barely did. Uh, Wisconsin was just, yeah, they're just not good enough. They're just not good enough. They're just one or two players away. But uh, it was a great game to watch, a lot of fun, very exciting. Now let's talk about selection. Uh, no, before we get to selection, let's say let's pick up on that guy's comment who said "brave pick, Bill." DCU. <laughs> I, I get irritated. I don't know if you guys do, Chris and Lou, um, with these experts who get on there and they're paid seven million dollars a year, and all they do is pick the favorite every time. You know, Packers, Steelers, uh, Steelers, Steelers, yeah. Steelers, Steelers. Yeah. Well, the Packers almost beat Steelers. And then this last uh, Monday night game, uh, uh, Steelers-Bengals. Oh, Steelers, Steelers, Steelers. Now, somebody did pick the Bengals before that game. I can't remember who it was. But, you know, let's do a little homework. Let's be a little, take a few chances. Let's be a little brave and not just pick. I, I don't need $7 million a year former football player experts just to pick the
1: favorite all the time.
0: I can figure that out for their record. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, which is why I think it was brave of you to go out on the limb and pick TCU. Okay, now let me tell you, what's going to happen in the finals, all right? <laughs> okay, yeah. What's your pick? Upset pick for the finals first week?
0: Alabama will beat Clemson. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but when it opened uh, Monday, uh, when some of the betting started, Oklahoma was—I mi- I mean, Alabama was minus one. They were favored. Now it's huh. dropped. I think uh, now I think it's Clemson minus two, but it's very close. But I, the other game is, uh, I don't think Georgia can sustain it. I think Oklahoma wins. Mayfield will have the Heisman by then, and I think he'll he'll roll. But let me tell you about selection process. Because Sunday, I watched that selection show, which was four hours. I'm sorry to tell you, if you think I lead an interesting intellectual <laughs> life, I watched it for about two and a half hours. Well, these guys went over it and over and over it. But when they announced Alabama was selected rather than Ohio State, I thought, I felt jubilant because I said, boy, they did the right thing, not the politically correct thing. And God bless Kirk Herbstreet, whom I don't always agree with, but I do think he's a conscientious and fair minded guy. He said, the committee did the politically incorrect thing. The politically correct thing would have been to have Ohio State. So you have four conferences represented. Uh, different conferences in the in the four playoff teams they neglected one conference a big conference a big spending conference an influential conference uh and have have two now from the sec georgia and alabama but i, th- I think it was the right thing uh, chris i should ask you do you think it was the right thing
1: you know i'm not no i'm no i'm not all you know is the minnesota or, vikings yeah That's i'm not as expert know. or brave as you when it comes to college football picks um But, you know, it does make me wonder uh, because Alabama didn't play in the conference championship, you know, had that big loss to Auburn. Uh, Yeah. I could see it going both ways. Well, uh, it was one loss. It was to Auburn away. It was
0: late in the season, but Auburn was great. And a lot of people thought number one team in the country at that time before they collapsed against uh, Georgia. But I remember two things. One, Alabama, for most of the season, was regarded as, you know, just invulnerable, just unbeatable. And they were in the number one slot for a very long time. And then they got a lot of injuries, and they had a couple, 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 close, close, close games. And so start of the question. Ohio State, you know, it's now conventional wisdom, but I think the huge loss to your wife's team, Iowa, can I say that your wife? Well, team? it's not exactly hers. She's well, a uh, Iowa State, Iowa State, but it's close well, enough. Yeah, they're all the same to me from my from where I sit. <laughs> they're all the same. I know that's a very big <laughs> but, difference. Yeah, very anyway, big difference in the state. I know that. I know. I know that. But the big loss, um, and oh, Iowa State had some very impressive <laughs> wins this year. Good, good Lord, beating Oklahoma, but. Um, uh, that was, I think that killed Ohio state, but here was the clincher and Herbstreet again, Kirk Herbstreet, uh, on ESPN, uh, got right at it. He said, he either said that he spoke to him or he imagined a conversation with Dabo Sweeney, the coach of Clemson, in which he asks, who would you rather play in the first round, Ohio state or Alabama? And the answer is obvious. You'd rather play Ohio state, not Alabama. Because Alabama's Alabama. I mean, I think it speaks for itself. Who would any of the? If you asked Georgia, if you asked Oklahoma, if you asked uh, Clemson, who they'd rather play in the first round, Ohio State or Alabama, they'd all say they'd rather play Ohio State. That's what I think, at least. Does Lou want to get in on this? Can Lou get in on this?
2: I... uh... I'm thinking along the lines that Alabama, their loss was was better than some teams' wins actually this year, the way they performed in it. And uh, you know, I, I I never count a Nick Saban coach team out. There's just something about the way he coaches, very Belichickian in a sense that he just knows his opponent inside and out, weaknesses, strengths, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. and he gets his guys ready to play.
0: Yeah, I, he said something else, Saban, uh, Alabama coach. That I'm interested. Maybe one of our uh, crack research listeners could get on this. He said, we were criticized for playing Mercer. He said, I couldn't get anybody else to play me that weekend. I couldn't get anybody else to play me that weekend. I note that Alabama tends to open its season against a tough opponent. Last year it was USC. This year it was Florida State, which a lot of people thought would be the number one team in the country. And they had the injury in the Alabama game, and, and the rest of the season was history. But – um. He said, uh, you know, we couldn't get anybody else. Is that true? Because that's telling, too. You can't hold it against the team if they get a couple of cupcakes, as they call them, if they can't get anybody else.
2: It does happen. It does happen. Scheduling sometimes when you're an Alabama type, it's tough.
0: All right. Let's leave it there for now.
2: You're listening to The
3: Bill Bennett Show.
0: All right. Before we get to our interviews, let's talk about something else. Uh, Chris Beach uh, put an op-ed in front of me that was very interesting. Uh, And you highlighted parts of it. Chris, for the benefit of the audience, tell us what you found interesting in this column from our friend Ross at New York Times.
1: Yeah, this is a recent column he did for New York Times uh, titled The Sterile Society. And he explores uh, really what the effects of this, the reckoning, as we've called it, you know, the allegations against Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer, Al Franken, etc., And, and, you know, what's really going to come of this? And you've sort of hinted at this in some of your discussions. And so um, Ross takes on a couple opinion pieces that have sort of hinted at things that may come. Um, There's an LA Times columnist who worried about, you know, healthy relationships and flirtations disappearing. Um, Someone joked that we may be on our way to criminalizing courtship. And then there was some pushback from some other columnists, um, and one of them from the Washington Post wrote, uh, and this is what Ross Douthat uh, highlights, if you're a decent person, she wrote, a clearer, more boundaryed sexual ethic should not frighten you. If not, have you considered that you might be part of the problem? She goes on to write, we won't die of having less sex. Somehow, people will still find ways to meet, mate, and propagate the species. And here's what uh, Ross Douthat writes, quote, people will, it's true, but as a society, we are actually in some serious trouble on the mating and propagation front. And then he goes on, and here's the, here's the big takeaway. The cascade of revelations about powerful men is a continuation of this mitigation and correction process. But so far, the process has not substituted successful marriages for failing ones, healthy relationships for exploitative ones, new courtship scripts for the ones torn up 50 years ago. Instead, as uh, Weinsteinian or Polanskian excesses have been corrected, we've increased singlehood, sterility and loneliness we've achieved the goal of fewer divorces by having many fewer marriages we've reduced promiscuity by substituting smartphones and pornography we've leveled off out of wedlock births by entering into a major baby bust end quote yeah um you know if we've
0: had an excess of uh of uh, passion of juice of uh flirtation uh yeah I think the reaction among some in some quarters will be, turn it off. Just turn off the spigot. Just turn off the whole enterprise. And that would be disaster. I agree with what Ross is saying there and worry about it. Let's, let's put a few things out there. First of all, this is, this is obligatory. This is part of what has happened. One must begin by saying, yeah, I in no way endorse this kind of piggish, boorish behavior by men. Who are these people, Weinstein and others? Were they raised by wolves? What is wrong with these people? Crazy. Um, farthest thing from my mind and the mind of most men. So let's not think of men in this way, all men or most men in this way, uh, and find that they're getting, they're getting pushback and big pushback. Point two, just because a man is accused doesn't mean he's guilty. Um, we are getting to the point where I think, uh, some people believe any accusation is self ratifying, self validating. Uh, that is not true. Three, be careful in this area. It is, as Freud understood and <laughs> every psychoanalyst since, this is the, one of the trickiest and most delicate and most sensitive and most explosive aspects of human life, human sexuality, the attraction between the sexes, uh, and, and, you know, he, she is the machine that makes fiction work. Chekhov wrote that. It also makes the world work. It, love makes the world go round. And I think that's right. Um, and we don't want to end up with a kind of dried up, desiccated sexuality that finds no fulfillment, that finds no realization. Um, right, if you had this properly bounded or boundaried uh, relationships that uh, someone called for there in that, in that, that essay... And uh, people were putting their sexuality, if you will, to the best and largest of purposes in marriage, in, in, in procreation, children, uh, in fulfilling a family life, where, where of course, um, the, the, the greatest happiness is to be found, the greatest sexual satisfaction is also to be found. That needs to be noted. Fine, but it's not happening, uh, as Dothat points out. So be very careful when... When you're overhauling or even tinkering with these uh, with these uh, with this mechanism with this thing that is the uh, uh, it is both the third rail and the animating principle of a lot of human activity and life Um, you know men do all sorts of things to please women women do all sorts of things to please men Um, there's some trivialization going on here too Chris I, I was reading a column somewhere about christmas parties they're yeah. gonna do away with yeah. a lot of christmas parties that's fine a lot of these christmas parties are just drunken stupid things anyway where people end up you know um, acting in ways that they shouldn't around their bosses particularly and people get sloppy and and um, some of this garbage we've been reading about goes on but i also saw they're not gonna put up mistletoe well, right. You know, I don't, I don't think presence of mistletoe means you can grab a woman against her will. You know, <laughs> I think, you yeah. know, in, in my day, younger days, if you were standing under the mistletoe with someone, uh, you'd say, Hey, we're standing under the mistletoe and you know, you got a positive response or you didn't, <laughs> and maybe you got a peck on the cheek, but, um, it, it's a trivial example, but it's, is an example of things pushing, going too far one way. Um there's a lot of nervousness about sex and sexual relations particularly among young young boys when you're when you're when you're developing when your sexuality's developing you know you you you're dealing with it it sometimes can feel like it's overwhelming you but you're also a little afraid of it cuz it's a, it's a power it's a huge kind of force of energy um i always remember uh and i remember i told my boys about this I was 14, 15, maybe, and I wanted to ask a girl to dance. And I dialed her number and then hung up three times before she answered it. (laughs) Just because I I got so nervous. Yeah. Um, Now, I mean, I know different age communications, and I was concerned about her father, and you wouldn't have to worry about that now with a cell phone. But the stuff makes you nervous. It maybe gives you life and energy and purpose and and and, and, and uh, aspiration but it also is very nervous making it's it's uh, it's a fundamental part of our being and be careful with it. It's it's a beautiful part of God's creation, uh if it isn't trivialized, vulgarized, and
1: uh, turned into object of profanity. Go ahead. There's your yeah. lecture, millennial <laughs> Yeah, I mean from a millennial standpoint, um you know, I think you and death are onto things because you know instead of people millennials going out and uh, dating or courting, whatever word you want to use, pursuing relationships, uh, the trends seem to be that they slip back into things like pornography. Yeah. And then instead of getting that's married, a it, that's right, a disaster. Total disaster. Total disaster. And then instead of getting married, um, because they see the problems that there's been in marriage, you know, divorce rate, right, things like that, uh, people think, oh well, it's you know it's okay to be single, and so they push off and delay marriage, and so you know, I think the point is they see wrongs in society, but then the reaction to that isn't quite what it should be. Does that make sense? I mean, I mean, I think there need to be proper signals, and and the cure to broken relationships isn't no relationship; it's healthy relationships. Yeah, that's right, but
0: but the, but the, we well, we've, we've increased the risk factor here. Um, we've increased the number of warnings here with now don't harass, don't do anything that might be interpreted as harassment. So a lot of people are going to say, well, the heck with it. I'll just, I'll just go play video games, you know, right? uh, 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 uh the, the heck with it. It's nervous making anyway, always has been. Um, and now, you know, we can, we can make it, we can make it more so. So I, I agree. And that, that construct has to be. That new version, or or something, or re, refined version uh, of of the proper relationship between the sexes has to be yeah. has to be found. I I have talked to a couple of women who have said, "Does this mean men aren't going to pay you any attention anymore, or give you compliments out of fear that uh, what they do or say will be uh, misinterpreted?" I said, "I don't think I'd expect any wolf whistles." I don't know if you'll still get them when you walk by a construction site if you're a pretty girl. But, um,
1: yeah, things are changing. I mean, I remember when you released uh, the book A Man, and we went out on the book tour, and you you talked to young women and parents, and it it just seems that we're almost at an age of uh, no healthy interaction relationship between the sexes and it's almost like an age of loneliness that we've gone into where people retreat into their smartphones uh into their own personal little bubble video games and then uh on the bad side pornography
0: well you were right were you with me out there in california at that big breakfast yeah i was huge breakfast and we talked about this the problem with men and you remember afterwards flooding the dais where i was and you were were these women and young women, middle-aged women, young women and their moms saying, you are right. Where are the men? Where are the men? Where are the men we can marry? Uh, and you know, where have they gone? And then I remember uh, shortly after that, you and I had a conversation because there was something in the paper uh, or a report about all these women who were living with guys, young guys, and decided to move out because all the guys were interested in was not them, but drinking and video games. You remember, remember that? Yep. Yep. Um, so you know, there's something awry here. I mean, I count on you to tell me what millennials are doing. I, I have a couple of millennials. I, you know, I, I, I sired, I fathered, uh, and I talked to them. But you know, your kids don't tell you much. <laughs> uh, they tell you about other people. They don't yeah. tell you about themselves. <laughs> but, but th- th- there's something awry, and I'm worried this can. Throw the balance off, even at the same time while we're trying to correct something which is
1: terrible and brutal and brutish and wolfish. Yeah, and I see it from a millennial perspective again is just you know a lot of people just withdraw. Um, they withdraw into yeah. their yeah. to their friend groups that they're comfortable with. You know, back to the conversation about balkanization, people kind of withdraw. Into their political associations, they withdraw into their, their, their video games or social media or whatever it is. And so there's just less and less interaction between people in general, especially people of differing views and in different circumstances. And then when you add men and women together, you know, and then that makes it even more complicated. Yeah.
0: We should say, hey, folks, we welcome your comments on this as always. And uh, if you want to vent on this, write, write us something and uh, maybe we'll read it on air uh, next week. Uh, Good. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for reminding me of that column. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. All right, folks, let's get to the big stories of the week. And the big story of the week, of course, was Mike Flynn, uh, the FBI, uh, Donald Trump, uh, where things stand. To help guide us through this thicket is Alan Dershowitz. You've been seeing a lot of him lately. And that's a good thing. Alan Dershowitz is a professor of law emeritus at Harvard Law School. He was my professor, but uh, he was uh, the professor of many more eminent people than I. The Felix Frankfurter professor, by the way. Do you have a favorite Felix Frankfurter story?
2: Well, first of all, I had no student more eminent than you, so let's get yeah, yeah, the yeah, record yeah. straight. Yeah, You're yeah, yeah, as yeah. eminent as any student I ever had. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I was named... Uh, the Felix Frankfurter professor but I didn't like Felix Frankfurter and I think the worst story you can tell about Felix Frankfurter is when Jan Karski one of the bravest men in the history of the 20th century a Polish Catholic lawyer um... uh, went to visit the death camps pretending to be a, a guard and and learned all about what was going on and came to America to see Franklin Roosevelt and he was told to go see Felix Frankfurter And he told Frankfurter what was going on in the death camps, and Frankfurter looked at him and said, I cannot believe a word you're telling me, uh, and kept Karski from meeting the president for over a year, which probably caused the death of so many people. So Felix Frankfurter is not one of my heroes. Jan Karski is one of my heroes.
0: Yeah, I've heard that story before. Maybe it was from you, Alan. Did you raise raise any objection when they gave you this moniker, this title?
2: Oh, no, no, no. It's a very distinguished professorship. It has a long history and it has very good incumbents that held the chair. So, you know, I was honored to have it. I, I don't believe anybody's perfect. Right. Uh, I would have been happy to hold the Thomas Jefferson Chair, even though yeah. obviously Jefferson was flawed, or the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Chair. Yeah,
0: sure. Uh,
2: one of the things I teach my students is there are no heroes; there are only deeply flawed human beings. You know, I wrote a book called The Genesis of Justice about the Book of Genesis, yeah, which shows the difference between the Jewish Bible and both the Christian Bible and the Quran. In the Jewish Bible, everybody's flawed; everybody has problems. In the Christian yeah. Bible, Jesus is perfect; Muhammad is perfect. And I think uh, one of the reasons Jews are such self-critical people is we were brought up on a Bible where Abraham argues with God, where Moses hits the rock, where David, <laughs> King David sends his enemy out to the front to be killed, imperfect, imperfect heroes. And that's what uh, I think we have in, in every aspect of life.
0: Yeah. I like Oscar Wilde. He says, uh, every saint has a past, every sinner has a future, you know. Uh huh.
2: That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. Because he great, was
0: a little of both, right? Yeah. There's, there's a line I use in my speeches to begin them, which is I, I attributed to Mrs. Frankfurter, and it says, "Excuse me." And it says, uh, "She said Felix makes two mistakes when he speaks. First, he digresses from his text. Second, he returns to
2: it." <laughs> that's wonderful. She was a wonderful woman. I met her a few times. And I liked her very much. Look, Felix was the most charming guy you could ever meet. Yeah. But he was an opportunist and very ambitious and, you know, a good justice and a very good professor. Again, mixed, mixed history.
0: All right, let's talk about Alan Dershowitz in the fight. You're making me think. You always you always made me think, but you make me think of quotations. You are in the fight. What's that line from Holmes? You know it. The place uh, for a man who's complete and all his powers is in the fight. The professor gives up half of what uh, he is so his intellect may flower in peace, but the place for a man who's complete and all his powers is in the fight. Alan, you are in the fight. You are everywhere. You're engaging on everything. Boy, that you made this point about... Uh, obstruction of justice and the president and uh, folks came after you. I saw you've got a new editorial, a new op-ed on this. Do you want to take a minute and explain that?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, I want to talk first about the Donald Trump a weight reducing diet. It's really, I've lost uh, almost seven pounds as a result of Donald Trump because my liberal friends don't invite me to dinner anymore. <laughs> and uh, so I'm getting many, many, many fewer dinner invitations. And for some reason, conservatives don't have dinner parties. Uh, liberals that's,
0: do. That's correct. And so that's correct. I'm I can losing I'm that. That.
2: losing a lot of weight. By the end of the year, if this continues, I'll be down to fighting weight when I had you as a student.
0: Okay, okay, okay. But, but it, is, it is interesting. Uh, are you finding, are you shocked at what some people are, are saying about you? Are it's shocking friends?
2: to me, because if really? the shoe were on the other foot, if it was Hillary Clinton and people were shouting, lock her up, and they are now. I was on Hannity last night defending Hillary Clinton. Um, my liberal yeah. friends would be saying about Mueller exactly what I'm saying if his target were uh, Hillary Clinton. And, you know, my liberal friends, uh, certainly my left friends, don't pass the the shoe-on-the-other-foot test, which is, to me, the only true test of morality. If the shoe were on the other foot, if it were a Democrat who they were going after, would you be saying the same thing? And for me, yes, I passed that test. I would be saying the same thing. Look, I voted for Hillary Clinton. I didn't vote for Donald Trump. He's not my guy. Uh, I'm not doing this to defend him. I'm doing this to defend the Constitution and the rule of law. And, again, yeah. uh, who was it, Oscar Wilde, who said they come after the bad guys first. Uh, and if you're a civil libertarian, you have to defend everybody.
0: Got you. Let's uh, jump into this. What is the relevance, I don't know if you, I'm pronouncing
2: this right, the Peter Strzok business, you know what I'm talking about. This is the, Well, he should have recused himself from day one. He knew he sent those emails. Maybe nobody else knew, but he knew. And he knew he shouldn't be conducting an investigation with the views that he has personally shared with the woman he was having an affair with. So I put the blame primarily on him. As far as I know, once Mueller found out about it, he uh, uh, put him in a different job. I think I would have fired him. I think he violated his uh, uh, oath of objectivity. Uh, But uh, I can't fault Mueller on this. I fault Mueller on a lot of other things. But uh, the other thing I think should have happened is they should have released the emails, should have released the information in the summer, not waited for uh, a lawsuit under the Freedom of Information Act.
0: Wait a second. I understood, but correct me if I'm wrong, that the Intelligence Committee had subpoenaed <clears throat> uh, information from Mueller's office, and that was never sent, and they kept the information about stores too long. So <clears throat> I realize Mueller's getting speech. That's true. That's even more serious. That's yeah. even more okay. serious if that's true. Yeah. And they refused to answer questions about his dismissal.
2: Well, they should. I mean, you know, we should. Uh, everything should be transparent. What, what I didn't like about the appointment of special counsel is that everything happens behind closed doors. That's why I wanted there to be a nonpartisan 9-11 type commission of inquiry to find out how Russia has tried to influence elections and to make sure it doesn't happen in the future. That would be transparent and open, whereas an, uh, a, a grand jury investigation is behind closed doors and uh, they decide what to leak and what not to leak.
0: Can this blow up the Mueller investigation?
2: I don't think it'll blow it up, but I think it certainly gives people who are against Mueller and his investigation more uh, ammunition. And Mueller should have realized, and other people there should have realized, that you don't give your opponents uh, anything, even if it's only about the appearance of, of justice. If you're yourself a target of... A lot of media inquiry. You have to be Caesar's wife. Uh, look, look what what Bill Clinton did. Uh, he's in the middle of an investigation about Whitewater, and he does what he does in the Oval Office. I mean, people do the most foolish things, even when they know they're subject to an investigation. And I would have thought Mueller, who's very smart um, and a generally quite decent guy, he's an overzealous prosecutor in my view, but he's a decent guy. Should have conducted his investigation with an eye toward the appearance of objectivity, even if he strongly believes that he is objective. That, it, it, did it
0: is, it is it odd that Strike? He was odd that uh, you know Peter Storrs is the or, or, yeah that Storrs is the uh, is, is the is the Waldo here. He seems to be in everything. Um, yeah. He's I yeah, he's the guy who interviews Kelly. He's the guy who interviews Hillary. How come?
2: Yeah, you know he's he's Zelig. He he appears in every frame in the zealic, motion picture. Right,
0: right. Okay.
2: Okay. And uh, <laughs> it's better. hard to understand why how how his role has been so pervasive, and it does you know create uh, at least an appearance of bias and illegitimacy. Um, uh, you know he should have been more careful about who he put on the investigation, who he hired. There should have been a conscious effort to hire people that are nonpartisan that were active in campaigns. For example, uh, Weissman writing yeah. a, a tweet to uh, uh, Sally Yates congratulating her. Nobody should have congratulated her. What Yates did was dead wrong. Yates was the acting Attorney General of the United States. She had an obligation to defend the travel ban, whether she agreed with it or not. The only time an Attorney General doesn't defend something is if it's so obviously unconstitutional that no reasonable person could find it to be constitutional and yet the supreme court yesterday's you know seven to two said essentially that at least on its face the travel ban appears to be constitutional so sally yates deserves no praise i was the first one to condemn her when it first came out and every liberal was applauding her i called her a holdover hero it's so easy to be a hero when you're a holdover from the opposite administration then you easily can stand up to the person you voted against
0: all right so i but what about Comey? I mean, you said it, you know Mueller made a, made a mistake in hiring him or not looking carefully enough, but what about Comey giving him all these assignments?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much Comey knew. That's okay. the question. Uh, if if uh, you have to ask the old question, what did he know, when did he know it, and did he uh, act uh, in a timely fashion if and when he found out about it? Look, when you're the head of the FBI, you really ought to know what your agents are doing and who your agents are having affairs with and what they're telling them in pillow talk or in email talk. And I think it was a failing not to know about this and to deal with it as quickly as possible because it does create an appearance. Look, I don't know whether or not the objectivity of the investigation was actually in any way compromised. All I know is it looks like it may have been.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a terrible appearance issue. All right, right, let's. a question you don't often get on, on TV in the interviews I've seen. Uh, you're an Old Testament scholar, so you have some profit in you.
2: Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Where's this going? What's going to happen? What's your best
2: guess? I think it's going to end not with a bang but a whimper. I think we're going to see a half a dozen indictments for jaywalking, the political equivalent of jaywalking. Failure to fill out your form properly, yeah, yeah. Uh, not being completely uh, accurate with what you say to the UN I don't think it's going beyond that unless unless Mueller makes the very very bad decision to go after the President for obstruction of justice for engaging in acts that are constitutionally authorized under Article too. And that's the point I've been making over and over again. You can go after a president for obstruction of justice if he did what Nixon did, and that is tell his underlings to lie. That's a crime. Uh, destroy evidence. That's a crime. Pay hush money to witnesses. That's a crime. You can go after him if he's done that, but you cannot go after a president for obstruction of justice for pardoning. The way Casper Weinberger was pardoned by George H.W. Bush, you can't go after a president for obstruction for firing Comey. Comey himself said the president had complete authority to fire him for any reason or no reason. And if, if in fact, he, he if Mueller makes the terrible decision to uh, charge the president with obstruction for engaging in constitutionally authorized acts he's going to create a constitutional crisis uh between uh, article 2 and article 1. Diane Feinstein has already done that as an article 1 legislator, the idea that she has the right to tell the president that he can't pardon or he can't fire uh, is just uh wrong under our separation of powers.
0: All right. Well, we, we we will see. I uh it's very interesting and it's great to get your perspective. And uh, you know, I, I I, I how did we get last question Alan how did we get so balkanized um, you know you've talked about the criminalization of political differences yeah. how did this happen you know I'm, I'm I'm with Moynihan I think politics is important but I think culture is more important and
2: politics I agree with that
0: yeah spills out of the culture how did we get here was it the yeah, media look, Pat, was it
2: Pat Moynihan was a good friend uh, yeah. Senator Jackson uh, those were the days when you could have bipartisan yeah. discussions yeah. Uh, Today, everybody uses the criminal justice system as a weapon. Um, Lock them up. Lock her up. Uh, Let's see if we can find crimes. It's a terrible thing. Let me make one more point if we have a minute. One of the things that they say Flynn lied about was efforts to try to get the Russians to either postpone the vote at the Security Council or vote against the uh, Obama plan, which he engineered to get the United Nations to change a 40-year status quo by not saying Jerusalem is up for negotiation, but by declaring Jerusalem basically to be illegally occupied territory, the Western Wall, uh, the Jewish Quarter, the Hebrew University, and Hadassah Access Roads, that would be like saying the Vatican is occupied territory, or Salt Lake City is occupied territory. And I think the effort to try to undo that uh, was a very commendable thing. And I'm glad that the administration did that, and I'm glad that they're recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, because that is the perfect response, the perfect response to the uh, Obama-engineered, one-sided U.N. resolution. And it was Obama who changed the status quo, not what President Trump uh, is doing by recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel.
0: The critics are saying, and the critics are kind of the usual suspects, except the Pope is in there, too, I'm sorry to say, as a Catholic, but uh, you know, it's going to cause turmoil. It's going to cause more conflict, more trouble. Your comment on that?
2: Well, the well, United States should never engage in any policy decision, yes or no, at a fear of violence. Otherwise, you give the terrorists a veto over everything we do. Yeah. Palestinian terrorists threaten violence on anything we do. They would threaten it if we were a peace process. So you can't make decisions based on. Uh, the threat of violence. Uh, you have to make decisions based on what's right and what's wrong.
0: Okay. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, my professor, thanks very much. Thank we you. look forward to seeing you. When when, when are you on TV next?
2: Uh, you never know. Okay. Probably okay. about okay. Jerusalem, but you never know. We'll, we'll tune in. Take care. Be well.
0: You are listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Before we go further in the show, I need to tell you about Casper. Now, Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Casper mattresses provide all the support the human body needs in all the right places. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. The breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. There are three mattress models available, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. And Casper is not just a mattress company. They offer a wide array of products to ensure an overall better sleep experience. Casper can offer such affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and they sell directly to you, the consumer. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Casper's design developed and assembled in the U.S. They offer no-hassle returns if you're not completely satisfied. Your Casper will be delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box. They offer free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. And you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night, risk-free, sleep-on-it trial. Here's a special offer to listeners of The Bill Bennett Show. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash bill and using promo code bill at checkout. That's Casper.com slash Bill, and use promo code Bill for $50 off any mattress. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. For a couple years now, I've been carrying around a poll, and it gets updated every six months, and every six months, the update of the poll brings me news which is not good. It's the same thing over and over again. Millennials aren't satisfied with capitalism and might prefer a socialist country, studies find. According to a new YouGov study commissioned by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, which is an anti-communist organization, yeah, they do have a point of view, uh, a point of view we should all have, it found that 44% of millennials would prefer to live in a socialist country, with another 7% saying the same about communism. Meanwhile, just 42% of millennials said they would choose to live in a capitalist country like the United States, according to the survey of 2,000 people. So, a preference for socialism over capitalism. Well, I was thinking, if they really prefer a socialist country over capitalist one, maybe on spring break, we could gather up some funds and send some of these millennials to Venezuela, and then report back. Venezuela was once the wealthiest country in Latin America. Not so long ago, I used to deal with the Venezuelan government when I was drug czar. It is now a disaster. This is a case study in the perils and problems of communism and socialism. Other factors as well, as you shall hear. I, folks, as you know, am a fellow of the American Strategy Group and here to discuss the downfall of Venezuela, the collapse of Venezuela, with me is Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group, and we welcome
3: him back. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you, Bill. It's uh, it's always great to be with you.
0: Tell tell me what you think. You heard the, what I just said well, about I, the millennials? You know, you know,
3: I, yeah, no, I think, I think that's, uh, that's quite right. And, of course, it's very easy to think that uh, – uh, socialism is a viable alternative when you're living in the luxury of a capitalist country like the United States. All these millennials live very charmed lives, or many of them do anyway, and they don't have to suffer the way people do in Venezuela. You probably saw the same article I did on Bloomberg recently, where they were talking about these uh, these you know fields, you know the agricultural fields in Venezuela. Uh, either going empty, or the uh, poor farmers who were trying to to raise crops having such a hard time of it. So Venezuelan socialism was making it difficult to import grain, you know, seed, uh, fertilizer, all the rec- you know prerequisites of trying to have some kind of economy and. The people in Venezuela were suffering because of it. Well, the millennials in the United States never have to suffer that. The Starbucks always has coffee and, you know, go down to the Whole Foods and there's everything you could want. Not so in Venezuela. And it's easy for someone here in the United States to have that desire and think that they're morally superior by being for socialism or communism I'm not sure how they would quite get moral superiority, but they do. And uh, you're absolutely right. Just looking at Venezuela, you see the disaster of telling people that they're not going to be able to keep the uh, fruits of their labor. All of a sudden, people don't produce much anymore. And really talented people leave the country. And that's a real shame. And I think we're seeing uh, in Venezuela... Uh, something of a human tragedy that should have been averted.
0: Let's let's go through sort of some of the basic steps that occur when you move from a wealthy capitalist country to a socialist country. I'm reminded, Brian, um, when I did the book of virtues, I said this was to, you know, remind people of the stories they once knew and and talked about and 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 and. and and remembered, and to give them a reminder of those stories, like the Midas touch, you know, everything turns to gold. And I remember I said that on TV, and I got notes from people saying, nope, never read that story, actually never heard it. Uh, For a lot of these millennials, I don't think they've ever heard the argument against socialism. What is it that socialism does? What happened in Venezuela, similar to other countries? uh nationalization of industries seizure of the of the of the private sector by the by the government what is it that begins the downward spiral what are the main elements here that uh cause a country a once proud and wealthy country to fall into such uh, ruin
3: well you know under the presidency of well remember of course that venezuela as wealthy as it was most of their wealth came from oil and that has a way, I think, of subsidizing a lot of inefficiency. Mm-hmm. If Forgive me, they were almost as – because of the oil, they became wealthy, and that has a certain corruption to it, because they were giving away the money or giving away the wealth or spreading the wealth in such a way that people just thought the money should flow. Now, the creativity – of the Venezuelan middle class was always there, and there were educated, um, accomplished people in Venezuela. But at the point where it looked like, you know, whether it was a a moderately socialist government to a more radical socialist government like that of Hugo Chavez, who preceded, you know, Nicolas Maduro today, you know, once Hugo Chavez really did signal that that was the turn socialism, those middle-class educated you know, people who drive an economy forward, during those Chavez years, hundreds of thousands of those people, the most talented people, left the country, just took their wealth and expertise and left and moved somewhere else because they could afford to move somewhere else. Now, this is a country of 31 million people. When you have a lot of really talented people leave, that's a problem. Imagine, you know, that's a a similar size to California. Imagine the best minds of Silicon Valley, you know, and San Francisco and Los Angeles leaving the country. Then the only thing you have left, because all the talent leaves, the only thing you have left is your oil wealth. And you can only exploit that for so long. And the signal is sent that we're turning to socialism so that if you have money we may take it from you you have land we may take that from you when you produce something whether it's whatever it may be whether it's wheat beef you know anything that might be consumed by people when we can control the price and you're not going to make money you know that sends a signal if you tell let me just back to your point about the millennials if you tell the millennials or tell Starbucks that you can't charge more than, you know, a dollar for a cup of coffee that people pay $4 for, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure you're going to see many Starbucks open up in neighborhoods. Well, the same thing is true in Venezuela. All of a sudden, you told those similar kinds of people you're not going to make money. Well, guess what they did? Then they weren't going to risk their money, and they'll do something else. That really, I think, was the, the profound signal that that Chavez and that I think Nicolas Maduro um, has also sent, and that's really the un- that's really the unfortunate thing.
0: Tell me t- two things. First of all, on the side, I'd prefer if you use Dunkin' Donuts as opposed to Starbucks. I, I have a creepy feeling about Starbucks being somewhat more sympathetic to socialism and communism than Dunkin' Donuts, but that's just that's just my personal.
3: Well, oh, Yes,
0: totally. Absolutely. <laughs> but 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 let's go back a step. Why, why, the, why do people flee? What, what is behind the notion that the government should start setting the prices and controlling the industries? Is it not the belief or assumption that the government will be more fair, it will distribute the wealth more equitably? That's the promise, isn't it? That the private sector will hoard, it will be selfish, it will generate inequality while the government... Uh, will, uh, knows best and can decide and can uh, distribute equally. Uh, of course, the end of the story, what they end up is the equal distribution of misery. But, but isn't that the assumption of the, of the socialist uh, uh, model?
3: Right, yes. No, just to vilify capitalism. And so there's this question of justice. Who is going to be more just in the distribution of the goods? Obviously, your point is a socialist say they're going to be more just. But I think in I think in Venezuela, you can you combine that justice idea with this powerful personality of like a Hugo Chavez and even to some degree uh, Maduro today and kind of like Castro in Cuba. Not only are there socialists, but they are socialists that are fighting for you. And so Chavez would Chavez would would, you know, belittle the capitalists or the the upper and middle classes he would complain about their excesses and vilify them and he would tour the country a little like castro would and make the argument to the everyday people who with whom you know he had a very close relationship and he would distribute food and medicine and everything else you know basically by redistributing the wealth of the yeah. country yeah. Uh, yeah. But by, but by the way, Ch- Ch- interestingly, Chavez would complain about how much alcohol the Venezuelans consumed, and he would complain because he, he wasn't a drinker, apparently. Uh huh. And but he would complain about them drinking too much, as if the good socialist man doesn't drink that. Much. I see. I see. And he and he also complained. You might get a kick out of this about how many breast augmentation surgeries. The people of Venezuela were getting. Well, of course, we're talking again about the upper and middle classes. Yeah. So, Chavez saw the what he thought were the excesses of Western capitalism.
0: We have to have being, equality there too. Is that was that the point in terms of breast yeah,
3: augmentation? I mean, yeah. yeah the, okay. the, well, right. the socialist the socialist okay. man shouldn't be worried about such things. I see. He should see. be worried. He should be worried about you know justice and not the size of a woman's breasts.
0: There's a very simple uh, a premise at the bottom, is there not? Tell me if I'm wrong. At least I've always thought so. That uh, you you, you describe the very wealthy man hoarding his oil, or you mentioned Cuba. I remember reading this book about uh, sugar companies and rum companies being seized by the government. Um, uh, the figure is that of this very wealthy guy who owns, uh, you know, a lot of land and has a lot of oil. Uh, and he's very wealthy. And what we do is it, it basically take that from him. And instead of him having, you know, a million dollars or $10 million worth of wealth uh, under the promise of socialism, we'll have a thousand people uh, sharing uh, that uh, that wealth that used to just belong to one man. And isn't that obviously better? A thousand living decently off the wealth that one man used to live off. What's What's wrong with that? Or What is it that happens in the execution uh, that makes that
3: uh, end unachievable? Well, obviously, the the problem with the premise is it always comes down to who's going to distribute that wealth and who are they going to distribute it to. And in a country like Venezuela, like other socialist countries, that meant you you had to be very loyal to the leader whoever that leader was, and then that leads to corruption all by itself. That's the problem with socialism, that questions of justice are then settled by one man, one man or a few men, and they get to decide how much money gets distributed and to whom. I mean, I think one of the biggest problems of Latin America broadly, but Venezuela in particular, is once you build almost – you combine the cult of – the cult uh, the problems of socialism, because, as we say, who gets to, to decide these various things, with the cult of personality in a, in a guy like Hugo Chávez or Maduro. Once you combine those two things with everyday corruption and law and order seems to break down, then it's every man for himself in the great socialist society. And people start fighting it out, and you don't really know. And that's why you don't get the distribution of wealth more broadly, because socialism can't do it, because it's just playing favorites with everybody who wants to support it. Isn't it? And it, so, it, 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 I mean, it, that's the, I mean, that's the real downside of of a socialist system. Not only does it not achieve the justice you're describing of taking the wealth and distributing it. But people no longer sense that there's law and order. And when there's no longer law and order, then there really is no justice. So the whole thing al-
0: breaks down. And there's also no reward for hard work, right? I mean, if everybody gets, you know, one, one piece of the hundred pieces that uh, the wealthy man owned before, uh, no matter how hard or how little you work, you don't get any more. Uh, the incentive system is destroyed, which is a big part of the capitalist enterprise, isn't it? I work hard. I I, I save my money. I, I come up with a better idea. I you know work an eighteen-hour day. I hire well, and the company grows. But they'll put limits on your growth, right? How much you can get, because uh, the goal here is the equal distribution of
3: of the product, right? Well, that's the premise. You're absolutely right, but that's the premise. But in reality, no one quite sees it working out that way, do they? Yeah, they know they don't. I mean, I mean, Th- they, they see that, Yeah, I mean, the guy working the eighteen-hour day in America, twelve-hour day, eight-hour day, sees the fruits of his labor, and he has laws that protect him. And in America, we've created more wealth for more people than at any time in human history because we not only combined free market capitalism, we combined that with a constitutional order that actually allowed people to keep what they, what they uh, earned. And that's the, that's the wonderful thing about the United States, uh, that capitalism was a, a moral enterprise that people, people knew was inherently good because they, they got to keep what they, what they earned.
0: Is, is Has socialism or socialism-communism worked anywhere? People will say, well, you know, the Chinese are doing pretty well. They're improving or they seem to be getting better. Or look at the Scandinavian countries. Um, I think that's a canard. But, uh, you know, if socialism is as socialism does, is there anywhere where socialism is where it's doing well?
3: No. No. Uh... I mean you you if if someone wants to look at China, that's a combination of of capitalism, mercantilism, uh, with a heavy communist overlay when it comes to people's political desires. And so economically they're they're having all sorts of competition in the in uh, China with one another and with the rest of the world. and they're making money from all that and people, you know the people at the very top of the Chinese superstructure—the let's say top 300 million people—they're doing pretty well, and they're making money. Now they don't have free, the, the kind of freedom of speech we do, but but you know they're going great guns, and they've adapted to that that uh, communist overlay of not having all the freedoms that we do here. But who would want to live in that kind of a country where you didn't have the freedom of speech that we enjoy here today and the government was monitoring you? If you want to call that success, sure, they're, they're creating a huge economy, but that can't, be, that can't be everything people want. People want freedom at the end of the day, and that freedom is a very precious thing that we in the West have managed to achieve, uh, and, that, and that's, a, that's a marvelous thing. What about you, know, you look at uh, what about so
0: what about Scandinavian countries People often point to them
3: Well, it's awful cold up there, isn't it yeah, and uh, you know in in the cold they uh they spend an awful lot of money. they have an awful lot of wealth as well. I mean they have a lot of energy resources, most of the Scandinavian countries. And they're pretty good at, at distributing that. It, it's a much different. It's a much more. Um, they're not very diverse economies, I, I would say, and they're not quite as socialist as people describe. Right. They pay very high taxes. They're very high. They pay very high taxes, and they do have a lot of social services, but they also have a lot of productive capacity that they're able to extract a lot of wealth from. So, I mean, I think you're right. It is a bit of a canard. You can't you can't build a modern economy uh, on that kind of a model. And you look at you look at I mean, forget Scandinavia. Let's look at the the EU. The, com- the countries in the EU that have the greatest productivity and the greatest capitalist tendencies, even if they do have very large social welfare programs, but the ones with the greatest productive capacity and the greatest Commitment to you know, law and order and making sure that people can can keep what they earn. Those are the wealthiest countries in Europe. Look at Germany. Yeah. So uh, there's just no sense in which I mean people work for a reward, and that and that that can't be overlooked. And uh, I think what we're seeing in Venezuela, just looking back at that, is not only. People not being able to to keep what they earn but the Venezuelan people looking out and wondering what their future is going to be because not only do you have improper uh, governance in that country but you know you and I were talking the other day Russia and China are making uh, have made huge investments in Venezuela the, 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 the Russian oil company, Rosneft, is going to own a large part of the Venezuelan oil industry because the Venezuelans defaulted on a whole, whole bunch of contracts. And so even the oil wealth of Venezuela is going to be owned by someone else. Uh, the Chinese, Sinopec is making huge investments, had made huge investments and continues to, in Venezuela – and a lot of the construction was being done by Chinese companies, not Venezuelans. So the Venezuelan people see someone else coming into their country, whether it's Russians or Chinese, and extracting the wealth. And then they think, not only do we not have law and order here and justice here, but our wealth now is being taken by foreigners. Well, that, that's the recipe for disaster we're seeing played out in Venezuela. There, there's, a cer- there, 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 there's a certain hopelessness in all that, which, which you know we we in the United States, by the way, ought to ought to have uh, some concern, because it's it's, uh, it's a very unusual, it's a, it's a very unfortunate thing, to have a European power like Russia, European and Asian, and also China come, and take a oil-rich country like Venezuela in a very strategic spot and uh, extract its wealth that way. And we let it happen over years and years of bad foreign policy, uh, and we shouldn't have. And so now Venezuela is a basket case, and they're gonna turn to the United States and ask us to fix it, quite possibly. And that won't be right either.
0: All right, you right, let's go back where we started. Um, the millennials and what they think. Why do they think this? And if you were standing there in front of them, all the millennials in the U.S., give us two minutes on what you'd say to them, what they need to do, what they need to visit, um, uh, where they need to visit, what they need to read, what they need to find out. I was thinking of a very interesting book called Hitch 22. I don't know if you've read it or heard of it. It's Christopher Hitchens' uh, sort of intellectual biography, autobiography. Uh, he was a well-known man of the left uh, who switched in many ways. He became an American citizen, was a defender of, of a lot of uh, American policy against a lot of his leftist colleagues. But the, but the interesting part of the book is he visits his heroes, uh, Ho Chi Minh and Castro and uh, many others. And as he visits them, he becomes more and more uh, disillusioned with his socialist ideals. When he sees the reality on the ground... Um, he becomes more disillusioned. If I were talking to millennials, I'd say pick up this book by a leftist or a former leftist and read it. What would you say to them in light of the conversation we're, we're having right now?
3: Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I mean, they, they go to the best schools in America and they don't get a very uh, clear understanding of what the the world really looks like. They don't. Get no, no one's told the them religion. this. No, no one's no told one, them I mean, this. Maybe they should be reading Christopher Hitchens' book, even though I don't agree with a, a whole lot of his other, other writings. He did have – like many ex-communists or ex-socialists, he did have a very good expose on, on what is wrong. Americans don't get to read that. I mean, you, I mean you and I, during our formative years, were reading books by ex-communists, Witness by Whitaker Chambers. We we heard about the evils of communism. We read Alexander Solzhenitsyn, or you know, Western writers like Malcolm Muggeridge. We heard about what happened in the Soviet Union. We would hear about what would happen in communist China. We heard about the evils. You don't hear about the evils today. Right. Right. Of communism. Good, great
0: point. And great point.
3: No one hears about that, and in American popular culture. Uh, on, on a fictional television murder mystery, eight out of ten crimes, eight, eight out of ten murders on fictional TV shows are committed by businessmen. Yeah. So all of a sudden people think, well, businessmen must be evil. Capitalism must be bad. Why did they raise the price at the gas station? Why are things yeah. going up in price? Nate. It's kind of infantile when people have this kind of reaction to things. But uh, shame on the United States, uh, or at least our educational system, for not explaining to our young people uh, just what communism and socialism is all about and why law and order and constitutional government and free market capitalism is so good. We drop the ball. We, the Amer- we, we, the older generation of Americans we didn't continue to provide the kind of education we should have uh, it's kind of common sense though too right that sure it is you work you, you work a you work a long time and you ought to you ought to be making money and enjoying what that is and enjoying the fruits of your labor as we often say most people witness that in everyday life most of these millennials their parents were Working hard to raise them. Where do they think the money comes from? Yeah. Does it come from? You know, it doesn't come from the tooth fairy. So, ah, in the two minute, the two minute version, I think, would be very hard because there's so many things to undo in their education. They don't really learn economics. They don't really learn about the United States adequately. Uh, They hear about the evils of slavery as if that were merely about race, rather than the gross injustice of taking another man's labor. Yes. I mean, sl- slavery is evil on a number of levels, but race is only one of them. It was, yeah. It was, it, I mean, the, the, the Southerners owned slaves because they wanted their labor, not because they were racist. They were—they may have been racist, they were racist— but they really wanted their labor. That, that was the evil of the matter. They were human beings deserving of their equal rights as human beings. They deserved the fruits of their hard work. That wasn't to be taken by another human being. You would think that would have been a lesson for millennials about the world. But instead, the only lesson is the people in America and the West are racist. And that, 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 that's, an unfor- that, that's an unfortunate byproduct of all this.
0: A lot needs to be done. I'm thinking of George Orwell, the first uh, obligation of uh, responsible men is a restatement of the obvious. It's those first lessons we need to learn again. Um, those things, as you said, in another generation we used to know to be true are obscured from a lot of people. So part of this answer is education, education broadly conceived.
3: Quite agree. Uh, Yeah, but but, but by by the way, if if they really wanted to read, if millennials really wanted to read something, uh, they might want to read The Green Book by Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, the late Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, He wrote The Green Book in three volumes, and it was his philosophy about sort of third-world radicalism, socialism, and justice. And it was the favorite book of Hugo Chavez and, I believe, Nicolas Maduro, because it combined this crazy socialism with radical third-world ideologies. And if one opens that and reads any page of it, you will see near-complete madness and lack of coherence, and just a mix of craziness that... I, I think even most millennials in this country would look at and think, really? This is what these people believe? That can't You're be su- right.
0: You're sure? I mean, I, th- th- does one need a level of sophistication and understanding to approach these books without perhaps reading it and maybe agreeing with it? No. Okay.
3: I, look, All right. I mean, there American millennials, let's just pray, still have enough common sense to, to read things and discern for themselves just what the world looks like. One hopes that, but you're right. There's a lot of work that needs to get done. A lot of work needs to get done to get our educational system right. Uh, I know you've devoted your life to that. You didn't do it for the heck of it. You did it because you thought it was important. Americans, by and large, think education is important.
0: Can we hold it together if, if in the long run, last question, if in the long run, if if a majority of our upcoming generation believes socialism is preferable to capitalism, can we hold it together, or will their beliefs change as they get into the workforce and they pay taxes and they raise families?
3: Well, the short answer would be no, we're not going to hold it together. If the country no longer believes in kind of constitutional order we've had and they really do believe in socialism, I think the American experiment in democracy will be over with. What I do believe, however, is there are enough Americans who know from from uh, American history and everything, that, everything good they see around them and their own common sense that that doesn't work, meaning socialism doesn't work, and that it's been American capitalism, but more than that, American law and order and an American system of fairness and justice that has provided or allowed the kind of wealth creation and distribution we see today. I think most Americans will get that, but if they, if they reject that somehow, some way, then sure, there's no guarantee the country can last Look, I think this last election was a a very close call. And Hillary Clinton and the way she looked at the world, that that was in the exact wrong direction. And Americans knew that was the wrong direction. And thankfully, you had Trump making arguments about making America great again, looking back to an older generation where people worked hard, made money, everybody had a job. Trump, Trump was making arguments about jobs and making sure you had a job. Trump wasn't saying, I want to give you give you money or give you stuff. He said, I want to give you the opportunity to have a job. Well, what a wonderful thing that is. Americans working. We're the hardest working people in the whole world. The hardest working people in the whole world. And that uh, as long as that's the case, I think... All the uh, all the preconditions for greatness will remain, and so I'm a, I'm still I'm still an optimist. At the end of the day, I, I am
0: too, in part because I think, as you said early on, part of this is a kind of self indulgent uh, attitudinizing. Um, you know, I, you don't see millennials pouring out of the country to Venezuela, you know. Uh, <laughs> And, and, right, and their, right. as we say in their hearts, they know uh, that this is a better option. You know, the old Gates test, people want to come here, they don't want to go there. And there's a reason. We just need to get this generation and the next one to examine those assumptions and beliefs more critically. But thank you right. for the tour.
3: It, it, uh, my, pl- my pleasure, Bill. Always great to be with you. Folks, as you know, uh,
0: I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group. Brian Kennedy, with whom we've been talking, is the president of the American Strategy Group. And the important work they do is well worth your attention. Go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Thanks, Brian. You are listening to The Bill Bennett Show. You know, one of the benefits of having a podcast is to do something different you can take a little more time, you can explain concepts in more detail, do it other than just sound bites. You uh, who've been listening have heard over the last year or two one of the best explainers of tough economic and political issues, and that's Steve Wynn. I've mentioned before that Steve is the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and the finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. One of the most successful businessmen in the world, recognized by his peers as such, and he is a close friend and advisor to President Donald Trump. Republicans, as we speak, are on the cusp of monumental tax reform. And as you can expect, Democrats are ratcheting up their attacks. They continue to accuse Republicans of pushing tax cuts that will do nothing for working Americans. And they'll just pour, put more money in the pockets of wealthy CEOs. Nancy Pelosi called it Armageddon the other day, this tax plan. In this segment, Steve takes apart that argument. He provides an intellectual defense of the Republican plan and why it will help hardworking Americans. But first, and listen to this, he reminds Republicans that they have to get the bill across the finish line. Yup, Republicans have to deliver on what they said they would deliver. Here's Steve
4: Wynn. The politicians queued the public up. Well... You cue the public up, they start paying real attention, look out.
0: Yeah, and they're full of passion, I mean, um, and, and inflamed. And you said interest, very interesting earlier, Steve, you talked about the various, various sources of information the public has. And this is a, this is a people that gets worked up, and particularly when they choose many of their own sources to get For sure to read, it works them up even more. Sure. But, but let's talk objectively,
4: talk facts. Sure. What about the tax reform package do you like? it is focused tremendously on one end result, creation of jobs and the improvement of the take-home pay, the part of the paycheck that people keep. The entire theme of this is to ignore rich people completely. You know I mean? Matter of fact, rich people are going to pay more money. This is all about trying to create jobs to create more taxpayers by taking by making the corporate tax lower, you make the the corporations have more capital to expand, create jobs, and therefore, as they create the jobs, wages go up, people get promoted, and for those people already working, to make their take-home pay, the thing, the cash they get to keep out of the paycheck, bigger. Period. There's nothing else at stake here. Every single conversation is focused on that single measure. And if you think of it in, 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 the, in the most appropriate terms, the corporate tax drop is not, is, when they say they want to make American corporations more competitive, the reason they want to make it more competitive is so they'll hire more people. And the, the more demand for the labor, the higher the wages go. In the history of mankind, the only thing that's ever created a better standard of life is the demand for our labor. Yeah, The more demand there is, the higher our living standard is, the less demand until there's none, and we starve. So what we're trying to do and what the purpose of government should be is to create an environment that create, makes the best possible life for its citizens. What other rationale for government is there? And since the demand for human labor comes from the private sector, one of the primary purposes of government is to foster the creation of jobs. Trump understands that fundamental truth of history and mankind. And to make our, com- our companies competitive with all the other countries so we don't report everything from every place else is to, is to have them manufactured and made or the ideas created in America and the demand for, for for the people to do that comes from our own population and within our own nation. It, it's not nationalism to the exclusion of everybody else. It's informed government on why government exists in the first place. Yes. Trump's, Trump's, and so it's clear. Get the people to create the jobs and shape where they need more people. And then as to the people who are working, take the tax load off their back so they can have money at home to take care of their children, their education, their health care costs, and maybe have a better life. That's what government does. This, these tax bills that are in the Senate and in the House, the only commonality they have is they're both trying to do that. And there will be a tax bill. okay? And it will Good. do that. <clears throat> And the Democrats can suck a lemon, because the technicality of it isn't going to make any difference, because the theme is going to be you get to keep more of your own money and the government's off your back. And when the Democrats try and criticize that, they're they're riding a lame horse. As a matter of fact, a whole bunch of them are going to have to vote for it. Oh, you think? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, you think? That's very interesting. When it comes
4: right down to it, oh, oh, oh yeah. You think Joe Manchin or Camp are going to vote against this tax bill? If they've got... I mean, I wish they would. There'll be more Republicans. But it'll be like with Gorsuch.
0: You want you want some Dems over, though, don't you? Or not? They're
4: not going to need any.
0: Not going to need any. But did but you? But, gonna, but uh, uh, would you prefer some over? Would the <clears throat> president
4: prefer some over? Sure he would. Uh, wouldn't listen, he? I would prefer that there was a kumbaya. Yeah. <laughs> and they all I, didn't together. Ask, I didn't ask for kumbaya. But it'd be nice okay. if they could get together. And, and one of the things the Republicans could have to do with or without the Democrats <clears throat> is to see to it. You know, we talk about 30 million Americans had uh, Medicaid expansion. 180 million or 175 million Americans had their health care insurance jacked up irrationally because of the Affordable Care Act. And that 170 million, they're still steamed up about it. Yes, they are. And and what happens here is there has to be a very this complicated problem now that Obama created by increasing that entitlement at the expense of the working people that already had insurance. It was a cold blooded move. I'm gonna take all the people that are being, getting insurance from their employers and that are buying it in the open market. 170 million Americans, and I'm going to make them pay for these 30. <clears throat> Most of the 30 didn't need the insurance, didn't want it. They they elected instead to pay the fine.
0: <laughs> yep, how about and, that?
4: Anyway, the point is this. It's why the Republicans got control, and it's got to be fixed. All right. And it'd be nice if the Democrats admitted that they, uh, they acted uh, impetuously.
0: And in your conversations with President Trump, is it clear to you the president
4: has not given up on health care reform? Not a, not, not not a chance in the world of okay. him giving up on health care Great. reform. Great. You know why? If you understand the problem and you're working in Washington, you're not allowed to give up on this problem. It is a distortion for 170 million Americans. What in the hell are you getting? Are you in Washington for? This is a major issue along with national security. There's a distortion. It was created by the Obama and the Democrats. They did it fast. They did it poorly. They screwed up. And they dumped. They dumped a whole bunch of stuff into 2,700 pages that screwed 150 million people. Yes, sir. Okay, if you're in government, this is something that is on the table that needs addressing. Now, what you see in Washington is a reflection of the complexity of the problem. You know, everybody's got a different idea about this. And people don't want to lose the coverage they got, whether it's free or whether they should have got it or didn't shouldn't have gotten it. All that doesn't matter. I got my insurance, and I don't want you to take it away from me the other guy says i've always had my insurance but it cost me ridiculously but you, you increased the price ridiculously i'm hurt it came out of my paycheck i didn't i didn't get enough extra pay to cover this this came right out of my hide it hurt me and i'm angry about it and you didn't ask me if i if i wanted to support the other guy's insurance you know there was an interesting you know, you heard Trump use the forgotten man term. Yeah. That, that's an interesting thing. Uh, I, I, I asked Gary Cohn how President Trump came to use the term the forgotten man. Somebody, I think, must have told him, uh, Amity Schlade. Amity Schlade. Wrote a book called The Forgotten Man, which w- was a review going back and looking at the New Deal and Roosevelt and his policies in the 30s and a discussion of everything that was happening in the 30s during the Depression in America. And uh, during that period, at the height of the New Deal, when all these social giveaway programs were installed by FDR, a Yale professor who was famous, sort of like John Kenneth Galbraith was famous Mm -hmm. when Kennedy Mm -hmm. was. He was an academic uh, of of highly respected, famous guy. And this Yale professor wrote an article in a big magazine, excuse my hoarse voice today, called The Forgotten Man. And it was a discussion of the New Deal programs. And to simplify it, it was that one group, A, group A decides that group B is needy or disadvantaged. You know, all the people out of work in the Depression. And A decides, since B is needy, that C should pay for it. The trouble is no one asked C for their opinion. The Yale professor said that C is the forgotten man. Mm -hmm. A decided on behalf of C that he ought to pay for something. That was a widely regarded article. And it was true. (laughs) Well... Later on, during the Clinton and mainly in the Obama years, some Democrats grabbed that phrase, the forgotten man, and applied it to B, again, like FDR did, That, and it's the way Democrats have always tried to bribe the public with their own money. A needs help. C's got to pay for it. A says that C's got to help pay for B. Well, when they did that with the Affordable Care Act, and they told all those union workers and, and people working for wages in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, that you had, they had to pay for the health insurance for someone else without asking their permission, the Forgotten Man theme really resonated. And Trump picked up the original sense of the Forgotten Man that was in that Yale professor's article. hmm Right. After the Democrats had hijacked it, interesting uh, that that Donald said the forgotten man. The first time he mentioned the speech, I meant to ask him about it, and I keep forgetting to do it. And you think this came up from a conversation with Gary Cohn?
0: No, I asked Gary. Yesterday, oh, I see. With
4: Gary yesterday, and I asked Gary, does he know how Donald, how President Trump came up with uh, the forgotten man? And he didn't know.
0: Yeah, we used to talk to Amity uh, about the, when her book came out. We interviewed her extensively, and it's a yeah, it's forget, a fascinating idea. Very interesting article, and you're good right, book. Steve. Yes, forgotten by the Democrats in recent years as well as then, the forgotten good, man. Good book. Yeah, let do, me ask do you. Do you know Amity Shaleen? Yes, sure.
4: Wow. I'd like to meet her someday.
0: Sure. Well, we can do that. I was just thinking while you were talking, we're going to play all this and send it to her because she'll get a kick out of it. She'll get a huge kick out of it. It's very bright uh, and iconoclastic, obviously, in, in her views. Okay. We sent this segment to Amity right after the podcast aired and we'll share her response in the next episode and perhaps get her back as a guest. We don't want her to be the forgotten woman. But Steve is right to remind us of the true meaning of the forgotten man and how it has been distorted over the years. You know, that's why we have these conversations, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we have them with Steve Wynn. I think there are few people who can explain these complex and tough issues in such clear and persuasive terms. All right, another show is in the books. Thank you for sending me your thoughts and comments. Please continue to do so. We love your feedback. We do read your comments, as you can tell, and we enjoy them even when you're beating up on me. It's fine. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bill Bennett Show.